let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that your arm is never too short to save and that no matter what the circumstances might be, our station in life, uh, even who we think we are, um, that you have the ability to crash into the situation and uh, make a way uh, where there is no way. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, I'm going to do a series. It was four weeks, um, but uh, tomorrow uh, Lauren is going to have a baby. Uh, and so we've extended it to five weeks uh, series. So this is a five-parter, and we will meet next week. Um, I don't have a problem with, with um, my job. Um, I have a problem with my job. So um, <laughs> we will meet next week, and I'll be preaching next Sunday, uh, but you'll be safe. Uh, we're talking about unlikely converts, and I'm going to walk through the Bible because there are all these wonderful people who you would think um, that's the last person I thought who would become a believer. And uh, I know if you're anything like me that you have people in your life who uh, seem as far away from the gospel and as far away from Jesus as they could possibly be, and you think there is no hope. They may even be people, as the dean said this morning in the sermon, enemies of the cross, and you think there's no way. And I'm not even talking about uh, our culture, although that, that plays in. People like Richard Dawkins, um, people who uh, really um, are really, really bad, like people in Us Weekly uh, or People <laughs> Magazine bad. And um, uh, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, but, but even in our own family, our siblings, uh, our parents, uh, our children, uh, our best friends, uh, where even to bring up the gospel or bring up Jesus uh, produces an eye roll and not just, not just polite, we'll listen to you, but actually hostile, forget it. I, I want nothing to do with this. And the thing about God, though, is that he is no respecter of persons. He doesn't see us and say, you have too much baggage. There's too much of an impediment for me to actually reach you in life. And the story of the scriptures, I'm just going to pull out a couple of examples, but I don't know if you notice, God will go to great lengths in order to get our attention and to save us. You know, very small sort of practical things like getting swallowed by a whale. Um, uh, uh, raising you from the dead, uh, <laughs> things like that. And when I was, I remember we were talking about it once when I was in college and we were praying for this person down the street and this person was showing a lot of interest in the gospel, a lot of interest in Jesus, asking a lot of questions, coming to Bible studies, things like that. We were praying for this person and we would say, they're so close. They're so close to becoming a Christian. And we were sitting around talking, and then someone came in and said, hey, do you know so-and-so? And this person was like a total wackadoo. And, uh, and just, you know, said, Christians are terrible, Christians are this and that. And they're like, they became a Christian. Like, they're Christians now. And it was like, wait a minute. Like, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. The person who's supposed to become the Christian was this fence-sitter that we were intentionally working on. Not the person who was antagonistic toward Jesus and the person we avoided. But in fact, in that situation, that's exactly who God was going after. And there's nothing you can do to thwart him. So I feel like I have a soundtrack in the back. It's, it's great. <laughs> Call now. Send us money. <laughs> and you too can get this CD. Okay. 
and I pray over each one. Okay, so on the one hand, on the one hand, when we look at the, these biblical characters, it convicts us. Because we realize that when we look at the world and we say, oh, that person is so close, what we do is we grade people. We, we sort of put them on a curve and we see people by their behavior and, and their thoughts and things like that. And we say, oh, they are far away from Jesus. Right? And, that's, and so we, we kind of look for the people who are close to Jesus and we really work on them. Uh, but it ought to convict us because it makes us realize, uh, one, um, it's impossible for us to actually gaze inside a human being as God does and to see where they really are in life. And what I found is that for most of the time in my life, people have the impression that I'm doing a lot better than I really am. And I give that impression, right? How are you? I'm fine. Right? And we all know what I'm fine means. Or, or I'm, I'm really good. I'm great, which means serenity now! You know what I mean? So, you know, someone, someone, uh, not who will rescue me from this body of death, but who will rescue me from my entire life. Right? And, um, and there seems to always be something going on. And I don't even mean like just the daily grind of life, but even spiritually where... Uh, a lot of the time you feel very far away from God. And so if we just try to judge by outward appearances, especially with non-Christians, very rarely uh, do we get it right. But thank God that God knows and uh, his will cannot be thwarted. So it convicts us because it makes us realize that the people that God chooses, the people that God saves, he doesn't save them based on what can you do what have you done for me lately or what can you do for me right that's the story of the bible um i have um you know if i were jesus um i would not have picked the 12 disciples right i would have had a job fair and uh and i would have done some active recruiting at certain colleges and universities and avoided others and uh, i would have i would have brought people in and um uh I would have tried to hire the best and the brightest. Like, oh, you've got a mind for marketing. Like, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's for the birds. Let's, let's you know, if, if you can, you're in charge of hospitality, right? Uh, I would get, I would totally get Martha on board. Martha, you're in charge of feeding and, uh, and, um, and lodging because you're good at that. You know, I'm talking about Mary and Martha, not... Um, not any Martha that's in this room. So, uh, so that so I would get someone in charge of that. But instead, uh, God chooses the weak things of the world uh, to shame the strong. He uses the foolish things of the world to shame uh, the wise. Uh, God's choice is always counterintuitive. It sometimes is referred to as the Nazareth principle. Uh, remember when Jesus was calling his first disciples, and I think it was Philip who said, um, or no, Nathaniel who said, when they said, "We've met the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth," and his response is. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? All right, not a, not a good start. Um, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And when we see how God operates, he never operates from a point of strength, from a place of strength, but in fact, uh, always is strong, his strength is always manifested in a place of weakness. So it convicts us in that sense that uh, God doesn't pick us because we've got it together or uh, what, uh, what we can offer. Um, but it also convicts us of our own standing um, with God. And that is that 
our relationship with God is solely determined by grace. That's it. And that is, is that God's love for us is one way and is given without any expectation of reciprocation. Now, a lot of Christians don't believe that, but that is what the Bible says. And that God loves you without any expectation of return. Now, of course, what happens is when somebody loves you that way, what do you do? You can't help but love them back, right? That's one of the miracles of grace. Uh, But uh, because grace is a gift, getting what you don't deserve, there's nothing that you can do to unearn a gift. I probably told you all the story. We gave Lily something one time, and I forget what it was, but I was so proud of this gift that I had given her, and about a day went by, and I didn't like the way that she was treating it. Uh, So I said, Lily, if you don't start treating that the way that you ought to, I'm going to take it back. Well, um, she looked up with me, at me with her three-year-old little eyes and said, but you gave it to me. It's a present. Shoot! Right? Uh, um, uh, because she's right. right. If it's a gift, it's a gift. It's hers. And there's nothing that she can do to unearn it. Right? If I take it back, it turns out what? It's not a gift. <laughs> it's not a gift at all because it's based upon her behavior. And even Christians misuse God's grace. Right? There are times, like St. Paul, when we say there are things that I know what I'm supposed to do. Right? This is Lent. I know what I'm supposed to do, but the very thing that I want to do, I find myself incapable of doing, but instead what I do is the very thing I don't want to do. Wretched man that I am, Frank quoted that, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what St. Paul is saying is that he has to remind himself that it's not about him, that it's about Jesus and his grace and his love toward us. And so that gives us hope, right? It gives us hope because it means that Jesus' grace and his love for you and his blood shed on the cross is enough for even a sinner, is enough for even a Christian, and that no one is beyond God's reach. Absolutely no one. And even when you think that is the last person who God would call into relationship with him, or you think about yourself, God couldn't possibly forgive me for this thing that I did whenever. Um, In fact, he has, and he does. And that is what the Bible is about. Now, there was a thought that crept into Christianity, especially in the 19th century, through people like Charles Finney. You all know about Charles Finney? He held a whole bunch of revivals, and there were so many revivals in addition to him in upstate New York. They called it the Burnt Over District. Um, And they had, and Finney's thing was he felt that there were things that he could do in his preaching and in his events to manipulate people into becoming Christians. He said, if you just strike the right mood and you say the right things, you can make them be Christians. Now, um, that's not true, uh, but we've all, we've all seen it happen. When I was in high school, there was this drama that came through town, and it was mainly playing at the Assemblies <coughs> of God churches, and it was called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Y'all ever seen that one? It's not, it went straight to video. It didn't come out in theaters. Um, 
and uh, I'm pretty sure there's probably a VHS copy somewhere. But what it was was this play, and you went in, and it gave you all these little vignettes of people dying. And so, like, there's some kids in a car, teenagers, and they crash, and they die, and they stand before the judgment seat, and... You know, one of the kids is whisked off into heaven and the angels and they're singing and then some devils come out and they take the other kid down to hell. Great for the kids. And (laughs) so they do like five or six of these things. And by the end of it, when the preacher gets up and gives the altar call and says, now where do you want to go? That is not a supernatural decision, right? Uh, Everybody is going to say, I want that, right? If you went out on the street and said, would you rather be in heaven or hell? Everybody's going to say what? Heaven. Everybody will say that. Not wanting to go to hell is not a supernatural decision. Believe me. Uh, but you'd see a stampede of people go forward, and uh, and then uh, things would go okay for a while, and then a couple weeks later, out of sight, out of mind, right? And then you start wondering, was their conversion real? And this and that and the other. And um, what, what you found is that really what it was was emotional manipulation. And that doesn't mean that God couldn't use that. Uh, but uh, a, lot, a lot of those people were not afraid of sinning. They were afraid of burning. And Charles Finney was the one who really perfected this. And they had all these things like um, a guy named Nevin, who was from up in Pennsylvania back in the 1800s, wrote about this. Uh, it's called The Anxious Bench. And so you would come to the church service, and if you felt like you were this close to becoming a Christian, you sat on the anxious bench, which was actually a reserved pew for people who were that close, right? And so that showed the preacher that, like, that's who you really need to go after. The people, and this is the anxious bench this morning. Just kidding. Um, that's why Bailey sat in the back. Um, but, but so the preacher would preach to them, and it became all about... Uh, what can we do to convince people that Jesus is Lord, right? It's all about our techniques. It's how we phrase things. Now, I do believe that personality plays uh, a role in that and that God uses broken vessels of clay to do his, his work. But above and beyond everything, it's, it's the work of the Holy Spirit uh, that does that. And... Um, one of the things that I really like about C.H. Spurgeon is when he was asked one time why he didn't employ those methods, why he didn't preach in, in that regard, um, and uh, he, said, he said, because it's a little bit like defending a lion, he said, a lion is like God's word. You simply open the cage and let it loose. It needs no defending. It needs no trappings. It needs no uh, showman. Uh, you simply let it loose, and it does its work. And Rahab, the prostitute, this morning, Gil Cracky was giving me a hard time because our first two weeks are prostitutes. Uh, but Rahab this week, Gomer next week. Um, what a name, Gomer, for a woman who's a prostitute. Uh, but um, Rahab uh, this week... Uh, what I'm struck by in the Bible is that fact. You know, if I were writing the Bible and I were going to pick somebody, even if I was God and said, I'm going to pick Rahab, I would probably describe her as Rahab, the person who fell on hard times. Uh, Rahab, who's going through a little bit of a problem spot in her life. Right? But what does the Bible say? Rahab, the prostitute. Right? And full on, and, and the story, 
No one under 17 in here? Good, we can do it. Okay, so let's read. Uh, I'm going to read to you from Joshua 2, and you've heard the introduction, and now we're going to go. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all over the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order. Lay, <clears throat> excuse me, that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, "I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you." For we have learned how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, <coughs> Excuse me, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned, and afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. The word of the Lord. Okay, so here's, here's the scene. If you've ever been to Jericho, it is a border town still. Apparently, it's the longest continuously inhabited city in the world. Um, but if you get to the end of the story, you can say that's probably not true because you didn't exist for just a little bit. Um, but uh, it's also the lowest in elevation in the world, uh, which means there's not a lot of farming there uh, because uh, you walk out uh, to the edge of Jericho and you look and what do you see? You see the Jordan River flowing into the Dead Sea. 
So at best, you've got a salt business going on, and I guess Avita or somebody like that probably had a had a shop there at one point for you know cosmetics, but <coughs> and the mud and things like that. And uh, but it's called the Dead Sea. Why? <coughs> Nothing in it, right? It's dead. Um, and even uh, as the Jordan flows in there, a lot of people have this impression that uh, that the Jordan River is this beautiful flowing river. Uh, it's more like a trickle and a creek. Um, they're real, it's not a very big river, and so when it talks about the fords of the Jordan, um, it doesn't take much to ford the Jordan River. It is wide at some points, but down in that area, it is often dry, and, um, and in fact, they work on that. But uh, the scene is uh, the Israelites have finally been told to go inhabit the land of Canaan. Right? Moses has died, passed the baton to Joshua. And uh, at this point, there are about 100,000 of them wandering around. And uh, you can imagine if one day you're out there watering your lawn in Jericho, and all of a sudden you see 100,000 people on the other side of the, of the River Jordan. Right? Ring the bell. <laughs> right? Whoa. Uh, what's going on here? And um, so they know that they're out there. Uh, certainly the fire of the camps would be enough uh, to make you know that they were out there. And what they've been commanded to do is this is their first foray in the, these two guys who were sent are the first people uh, to set foot uh, in the promised land and they go over the river Jordan and they go in and they've been given no instructions except to scope it out now in the Bible when you read that something is a city don't think population um, what a city means in the Bible is it means it has a wall around it so we actually don't know what the population of Jericho is. Uh, we do know that the Israelite army is 40,000. Of that population, uh, 40,000 are armed. That's the actual figure given. That's a, that's a pretty sizable um, army uh, to go into Jericho. And um, so there's a great wall around Jericho. Uh, and it's sort of like if you, you can still go uh, and see cities like this in the Middle East, um, and especially if you go into... Uh, Arabic cities uh, tend to do this too, where you have the Medina in the middle of the city, which is really the old city, and the walls also double as basically apartment buildings, right? Uh, and sometimes there's still hotels there and things like that, where it's both a wall, but it's also a home. And as the guys are going in and doing some recon, uh, they don't know, they're just going on faith, uh, but who uh, does God call to intervene in the situation and actually is the key player in handing over Jericho to them. Rahab the prostitute. Now, um, you can imagine the scene. Um, she's a prostitute. She lives alone. And uh, two men go in to see her, who are foreigners. Not necessarily uncommon, right? Uh, because uh, most men that went in to visit Rahab, uh, it was not bridge club. Uh, it was, you know, they were going to visit a prostitute. And so, but they were foreigners, and with these guys out there, uh, people saw what was going on. Rahab was a known individual in the city. And so uh, they, they go in, and um, she insinuates when they are asked, who are those men? And what she insinuates is that, they're clients. They're clients. And they really weren't satisfied with that. Uh, and so she gave them some other words and, and sent them off into the hills in order to look for these two spies. Um, but there she is. Now, 
the thing about it is, is that God had been preparing the way all along for the Israelites, right? Um, and there are often times in my life where I'm approaching uh, an issue, I can see a problem on the horizon, or I may be in the midst of it, and I ask, God, please get active. Please get involved. When it, more often than not, every time actually, it turns out that God was actually there before I was. And so even before the Israelites made it to the shores of the Jordan, God was working in the heart of Rahab. So much so that she uses a little phrase twice, we heard of the great deeds of the Lord. Like then she gets into the scary stuff. Our hearts melted. But then she begins a testimony and says, For the Lord your God, he is in the heavens and above on the earth beneath. And... um, and says, and my heart melted within me. My heart melted within me. So initially, they had heard, she's not doing this just to, um, to save her hide. She's not doing this just to save her hide. And there are a couple of indicators of why that is. One, because she's already said, everybody's afraid because we know that you're just going to break us down. We know what's going to happen. But she actually begins to give testimony that, God has been working in her heart and she knows him to be the Lord God and she's come to know him. Now she may not have all the details sorted out. She may not be able to write a theological treatise on whatever, but she knows she's a believer and if she goes, the Lord's going to take her. And one of the indicators that God is working mightily in her heart is she asks that they not only spare her. Well, here's one thing. There's no expectation that she would be spared. She doesn't expect that because she's in touch with who she is. But two, she not only asks for herself to be spared, but who else? Her family. Now, where is her family in the picture? You think they come over to Rahab's for Thanksgiving? You think um, uh, she's the godmother to her nieces and nephews? Um, She's not. And in fact, she has every reason to probably say in her hard heart, um, my family uh, has abandoned me for what I've done, and maybe that's okay. I can understand that and why they avoid me. And you know, I, I see them every day in the marketplace, uh, but because what I do is so shameful, they won't even make eye contact with me. Uh, they won't even acknowledge me uh, as their daughter, and they have moved so far beyond me in my life. They have their own life, and I think about them every single day, and, uh, and I used to resent them. But since God has gotten a hold on me, uh, I love them, and I want to see them live. So God has actually done a great work in Rahab's life, but not only saving her, spiritually speaking, uh, but he's changed her heart, and all of a sudden she has compassion on the very people who have abandoned her. And it's not like when they get to the door. um, Now, what's curious, and uh, I'd love to know how it happened, um, they enter the home. They enter the home. So if Rahab, the prostitute, were to go to them and say, uh, I really can't get into it, but for your own protection, you need to come and you need to dwell in my brothel of refuge. You need to dwell in my den of sin where all this goes on, everything that you're ashamed of, every reason why you haven't talked to me in 20 years. That's the only ark of refuge that will save you when they cross over the Jordan. 
and God somehow worked in their hearts in such a way uh, that they at least said yes uh, to that. And God uses sometimes the most unlikely of things, Nazareth principle, uh, to be an ark of refuge. And we could spend days just talking about these strange and odd things that God uses, like, well, literally an ark, a boat. And uh, I can only imagine for being on that boat for so long, Noah and his family uh, being there. And even though knowing that that ark of refuge is the only thing that has saved you, because you know in the ark you're safe, outside the ark you're not. But like after a while, being on a boat with no casino on it and no entertainment and uh, animals and in-laws, you might think about swimming. Right? You might actually consider, you know, maybe, maybe this, this, this is some, some way to rescue me. This is some way to rescue me. Remember, they got anxious, and so they sent a crow, out, a raven out, and dove, and they're just waiting for any green twig to come back. And so often, the means that God uses to save us from ourselves are in things that not only we wouldn't expect, but things we don't want. That's not how we want to be saved. God, that's not how I want you to operate in my life. It would be much neater and nicer if you just did it this way. I don't, I don't want to dwell in the home of a prostitute. Uh, I don't want to sit in the belly of a whale. Uh, I don't want to put my trust in a child who was born in a feeding trough to an illegitimate mother. And yet, God's mighty saving power is made manifest in weakness. And uh, very reminiscent of, uh, of this whole idea of Ark of Refuge, um, the most vivid example being, uh, remember the night of that last plague in Egypt when uh, finally God said, I'm going to take the firstborn male from every home unless, unless, and that applied to everyone. That just wasn't the Egyptians. That was the, the Hebrews, everybody. Uh, unless you are in didn't matter what your makeup was, didn't matter who you were, because the Egyptians could have fallen under the protection of the blood as well, unless you were in a home and blood of an unblemished lamb was spread upon the mantle. And only those who dwelt under the blood would be safe. And so it's, it's no coincidence uh, that here in another sort of Passover experience, um, what's the signal that is to be given? The scarlet cord from the window. The scarlet cord from the window. Now, believe it or not, uh, the Advent owes a great deal of gratitude toward the scarlet cord. Um, Why? Fast forward thousands of years later uh, to a man named Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. And uh, Cranmer, uh, needless to say, had a lot of people who didn't like him. they burned him to death, so uh, there you go. Um, <clears throat> he had a lot of people who didn't like him. Uh, but one of the things about Cranmer was he so understood God's grace and mercy toward him as a type of Rahab that he knew that God was no respecter of persons and that God would have mercy on whom he would have mercy, even those who didn't deserve it. And so from Lambeth Palace, during the entirety of Thomas Cranmer's reign, Do you know what hung from his study window so that the whole city of London could see it? A scarlet cord. A scarlet cord. 
and uh, it's, it's an obscure historical fact, uh, but we do have written testimony that a lot of people uh, found that God used that to change their hearts, to grab hold of the gospel. And of course, the English Reformation ultimately did take hold in England, and here we are. So, um, <clears throat> but Cranmer's understanding was that even those who saw them as enemies, saw him as an enemy, that the gospel was bigger than that, and that the gospel covered every sin, uh, every wrong and vain ambition, uh, every misdirected good deed, uh, even that, and that the scarlet cord was a reminder of the ark of refuge that is in Jesus. And then here's what happens. So um, I'll fast forward, 40,000 armed men, uh, they go, everybody's in Rahab's house, and uh, you know the story, they carry the Ark of the Covenant, the waters actually part on the Jordan, which was not as big a deal as it was in the Red Sea, but still it got the, the people of Jericho's attention, and uh, 40,000 armed men, and then they get up to the walls, and do they attack? Right, let's sing the song, just kidding. Uh, so. <laughs> They march around and, and the walls come, the walls, the walls of the city come tumbling down. But where does Rahab live? Man, what a testimony that it just so happened that the walls fall down except Rahab's. So now she's got a high rise, single apartment. It's very nice. Um, <laughs> thankfully, she's got the scar- scarlet cord to climb down. Um, and, um, and we read that um, God operates in such a specific way there. Now, um, we don't hear mention of the family. They may not have been believers, but they, but they were spared. Uh, but we know that Rahab would join the Israelites and would dwell in the land of Israel until her death. She would join the covenant community uh, of, of Israel. And uh, the thing about it is, is I wonder sometimes, you know, if I was in Rahab's apartment and I was looking out at the 40,000 and I look at the scarlet cord, and I look at Rahab, and even if I were Rahab, I would wonder, you think they meant it? <laughs> yeah. what, if, what if they just get up here and they, they remember, look, she's a prost- I'm a prostitute. Just drop the hammer. Like, wh- wh- what good is she? She's just going to, I mean, she's, she's a bad witness. She's a real bad witness. And, um, you know, who's to say that they won't, they won't change their mind? I know that they say that I'm going to be protected and that, that they will pass over our home and that we will be spared. But will we? And sometimes we think that about God. We think, God, I know that you're the God whose property is always to have mercy. Um, but is it? You know, we think when something bad happens in our lives, what have I done to deserve this? Um, we, we wonder whether or not God's grace is, is big enough to cover um, our habitual sins. Uh, we wonder, uh, you know, I'm a Christian, but in, in a lot of areas of my life, it doesn't seem like I'm getting better. Um, will God really love me in this way that he promises? Well, an illustration that you may not have heard for several years, uh, Paul Zoll uses it, but it's a good one. And it's a story about the duck hunters. Who were um, who were there uh, in a field on a on a uh, the bank of a pond, and um, all of a sudden uh, they hear uh, the sound of rushing, and they look and uh, there is fire coming, and they have uh, the frigid water uh, from the pond which they really can't get into safely uh, on one side, and they have this 
gigantic brush fire that is coming towards them. And they think, well, what do we do? Do we jump in the water or do we, we risk the fire? When one of the hunters takes a lighter out of his pocket, it begins to light the ground around them. It begins to burn a small circle in the area that they are standing. And as the brush fire approaches, it doesn't touch them. Why? Because fire will not burn where it has already gone. Fire will not burn where it is already gone. And when you find yourself in the refuge ark of Jesus Christ, uh, you're standing on a burn mark uh, because Jesus has been burned for you. Uh, all the punishment that you think that you might deserve or you think might be coming to you or is coming to you, uh, it's already been dealt with. It's already been dealt with. And uh, God himself actually takes on that punishment and looks at you and me as miserable offenders, as prostitutes, as uh, the other people that we're going to get into as we go along the way, and, uh, and sees uh, the scarlet cord of his cross. And uh, in that, uh, there is safety, and there is healing, and there is salvation. And so Rahab is, is a wonderful and glorious witness, uh, an unlikely convert, uh, but that's how God chooses to operate. Questions, comments, concerns? I finished on time. Anything? I don't expect any of you who are of child-rearing age to go name your children Rahab, um, but uh, a really, I think a really good reminder, a really good story, um, and a true story. Okay. Don't try to email me this week. I'm not going to be here. Okay. Let's I have to see them to know who they are. You know, you ever meet somebody and they're like, hi, I'm Bill. You're like, no, you're Scott. You're not a Bill. <laughs> and, um, and so we normally have a list and I kind of have to kind of have to look at them. With Lily, it was easy. With Mary Cabell for a while, I thought I'd made a mistake, but she's, she's growing into it. So she's growing into it. Okay. Okay. And we don't know if it's a boy or a girl. I mean, I know it's a girl, but let's... <laughs> Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again that your arm is never too short to save. And those of us who dwell in the land of Rahab, um, who find uh, an ark of refuge where we never thought that there was one, and we stand in a place that has already been burned over because of your cross. Lord, we pray that you would... Assure us of our salvation even now. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and open our eyes to your great love and mercy that we may know and feel that the only name given under heaven is the name of our Lord Jesus Christ for health and salvation. In your name, amen.